This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome again. Um, my name is Patrice Petro, and I'm, he- I'm here tonight with David Mendel, director and executive producer of The White House Plumbers. So, welcome back to the Pollock Theater, uh, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming out, everybody. <laughs> the last time you visited us um, in the Pollock Theater was in February of 2020 for an event devoted to um, exploring West, with the West Wing and Veep and changing notions of television, politics, and publics. Uh, that was in late February of 2020. And a month later, we were all in pandemic lockdown. Which I predicted that night. No. <laughs> <laughs> but... But this was also the time when you began working on the White House Plumbers. I mean, I think that things were brewing months before. I believe I had just come back to L.A. I had been on the East Coast a lot, basically location scouting, hiring, literally hiring crew and stuff. And we were all set to go that, I believe we were going that May in New York. And, you know, we shut down and, you know, again, it's a little bit like, well... There are silver linings, obviously a, a terrible, terrible time, but it did allow us to actually work on the script a whole bunch, which is never a bad thing. And actually, really the first time I've ever shot anything where by the top, because we had basically that extra free year where the script was locked. I mean, little things changed, you know, based on some new, different locations and, you know, that thing that happens where... We wrote a long walk and talk as they enter the place, and then it turns out the place had a very tiny hallway. And you know, you kind of go, "Oh, well, then let's add a scene outside." I mean, there were things like that. But um, I guess the the plus side of COVID was we we had a pretty locked script. But yeah, it gave us that little extra. So, what time. were the challenges working with a cast and working with? I mean, and, the, and the, all the people. The, I mean, on- I mean, you know, when we first started up, first of all, it was. Initially, it was obviously just like, who did we lose? You know, certain crew people. And again, everything happens for a reason. But we had a DP that I really was excited about. And he basically, as COVID, as COVID was ending, he didn't, we weren't, we were not like the first out of production. Other shows were ahead of us. And he needed to work. He was like, I have to work. I got to take something now. And it worked out fine because I then watched uh, Queen's Gambit as everyone else did during COVID and I uh, saw the name Stephen Meisler who was Mm. the the DP on that and I think I called him just ahead of like seven other people in the same boat who basically (laughs) needed to hire crew and were like watching Queen's Gambit going this is great I'm going to hire that guy and I got to him first and that was a really wonderful partnership on this thing that obviously would not have happened. I mean, there was a a different guy in the job um, who also would have been good, but things happen for a reason. But look, you know, it's it's hard to complain about what it was like being on a set um, during COVID because obviously it doesn't compare to the education problems and people dying and whatnot, but it sucked. It was incredibly isolating. As a director, there were all these zones, and I was in like the smallest, most limited access zone in terms of people getting to me. And I was, we were all, uh, I was PCR'd and rapid tested five days a week to make sure it never got near me. We had some near misses where we shut down a couple of times, but again, never, it never pierced my my zone, my region, but at the same time, it was me and Scripty at the monitor, even like producers and weren't allowed near me, like we weren't allowed to share the same space. And that was, there was something maddening because so much of TV and movie making, or at least when I think it's done right, is social. And the social element just went out the window. And, you know, at some point or another, I was living in a hotel in upstate New York, you know, with a sort of living room kitchenette. And I mean, it doesn't get more depressing than that. I mean, it really doesn't. And of course, I wasn't doing things I might normally have done. And again, this is not woe is me. I'm just telling the story. But I didn't hop on a plane for the weekend to go home and see my wife and kids because, you know, like everybody else, it was just like, you can't pay me to get on an airplane. So again, just very isolating. It was not fun in that sense. Yeah. 
Well, I know you've been asked this many times, it. and um, but would you say more what what distinguishes your take on the Watergate scandal, which has been told con- countless yeah. times across very different media, um, films like, of course, All the President's Men um, from the 70s, or Dick from the late 90s, sure. or you know, more recently, Gaslit from just last year. So what is um, significant um, and significantly different about what you wanted to do? And of course, you're someone who's really engaged with all these other texts, so... Um, you know, I think when you look at that list of movies, and by the way, also some TV shows, because there were some great, you know, initial Watergate TV shows, like in the 70s, including like, uh, what was it, uh, there's the one where like uh, Martin Sheen, I think, played John Dean, and was that the Blind Ambition adaptation? Anyway, this, so there's some wonderful stuff like that. Um, I think the great ones always have a very, and I don't think this is a, an insane statement, have particular points of view. Let's, let's start with that. Just what makes a good Watergate story? And I think, obviously, why all the president's men works is that's a very particular point of view. But by the way, it also works for Dick as well. You know, it's a very specific point of view. So I think, number one, this has a very specific point of view, but it was a specific point of view that we'd never seen before. And that's what I, attracted me to it, which was the guys in, who were on the ground doing the burglaring, the breaking in. And I've, I've said this, so you've heard me say it, but basically think about every Watergate show and movie you've ever seen, including All the President's Men, which I hope you've all seen. And at the beginning of every one of these, except uh, The Post, Steven Spielberg's movie, which ends with the Watergate break-in, you always see like an exterior of the Watergate and flashlights and like whatever. And then you cut inside and there's people going, rifling through things. And then you cut to the garage door and there's a security guard finding a piece of tape. And then all of a sudden there's a phone ringing and it's like five men were arrested at the Watergate hotel. And then you don't see those guys again. In some of the movies, they're not even named. Maybe you hear Hunt. Maybe you don't. Maybe you hear, you know, James McCord. But you don't even hear the names. And this was an opportunity, which I thought was very specific and special, to tell their story, the basically the guys in the foxhole. And so that, to me, was what was really interesting and unique. And it felt like it was so, in particular, interesting to not be in the corridors of power, to never be in the White House, to you're in the EOB, you're next door to the White House. We're never going to be in there. And I'll tell you something, you can't tell from watching it, but in the original script, and I shot it, I shot it because I love the idea, which I'll tell you in a minute, but I cut it, was, and it's actually one of the things I think that helped get me the job, because I initially went in to just help with the scripts, with the writers. And I pitched a bunch of stuff and helped them move around some things and things. And by the end of it, they were like, I got, all of a sudden I was being offered the job. But one of the ideas in the script was every couple of pages, and again, you know, like three or four times per episode, you were going to cut in and hear excerpts from the Nixon tapes. So you were going to hear the, the, the bugging. And I'll get to why I got rid of it in a minute. But I had this idea, which I'd never seen before, which was I thought it would be really cool to actually see the tape room in the basement of the White House. So it's this like locker room and see where they actually had the reel-to-reel tapes and the guy whose job it was to switch them out. And then to run sort of basically up the wall, basically, and follow it, basically... And there's that great sequence in, uh, oh, I'm not going to remember the name of it. I'm such an idiot. Um, it's the one, it's with the pneumatic tubes and the notes, and it's that, uh, it's a French movie. Um, All right, uh, audience, help us anyone, out. Anyone, I'll think of it. The second I get in the car, I'll think of it. But anyway, it's like, you know, they're sort of sending notes, like inter-office notes anyway, and, and it's basically, you're sort of following it. So there was my little bit of inspiration. But the idea was to follow the wire basically up under the desk, and the scene was going to be shot basically, if you will, from the bug's POV. So you would basically be behind the microphone and you'd see knees and legs and stuff, but you'd really be like looking at it, a real almost like the close-up of the bug. And I thought it was a really cool shot. Again, I'd never seen it in any of the other Watergate things. I really liked it, was really excited about it. 
got in the edit room, and what I realized was sort of a two-parter was that the entire hearing Nixon and hearing him during the process, but no one heard it then. We don't hear Nixon till much later. It ruined that entire sense of these guys have no connection to Nixon. Therefore, we, the audience, should have no connection to Nixon and eventually just cut it out. But I don't know, even I don't even remember what your question was, but somewhere in there was an answer, I think, maybe. So, yeah. We have lots more questions and lots more... um, I want to talk a little bit about tone because this first episode it has a it, it's a it goes throughout the series and we'll talk more about that as well. But the series is often classified it has been classified as a political drama, but it also obviously blends history and humor. You've said in other interviews that you thought of it um, that you never thought of it as a comedy because it's such a horrific period in American history. Instead, you've described its tone as a tragedy, a tragedy that makes you laugh. Could you say more about the tone? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to, honestly, the history, which is you cannot read these details. And one of the things, when I first was just interested in this at all, and was the notion, and I I don't think I'm giving anything away because it's the beginning of this episode, and I don't know if people have watched, have people watched the whole show and are here tonight, or is this people just kind of checking out this first one? Okay, I won't give away too much, but as you saw from the very beginning, um, there are multiple break-ins, which is something, as someone who was a Watergate aficionado, I did not, somehow it just escaped me. And not only are there multiple break-ins, but the guys who did the break-ins argue about what counts as a break-in. So there are ones where, like, they don't get upstairs, they get foiled earlier on, and some of them don't count that. They only count the ones where they, like, got upstairs and couldn't get in the door. But if they didn't get in the building, they don't count it. So there's this hilarious disagreement. But anyway, the larger point being is you cannot read the story of these guys attempting to break in multiple times. And this is a little bit of a spoiler. The first time they attempted it, they actually, it was a pretty good plan. They rented a banquet hall in the Watergate Hotel, which had their banquet halls underneath the office building. And so their plan was rent the banquet hall, have a banquet for six guys, and then sneak up the elevator. What happens is the, the guys up in the DNC are there all night because they're losing to Nixon. Of course, there's no reason to break in. But anyway, they're there all night and they get kicked out. So they try and hide and they end up, I kid you not, getting locked in a liquor cabinet. This, I'm not making this up. Um, the second time is what you saw there. They had the wrong tools for the door. So again... These are not jokes. This is historical fact that you're, you guys are giggling at me telling it badly. You know what I mean? So imagine when you actually get to see it and it's okay. It's pretty funny. So I was just absolutely shocked and in some ways impressed by this almost, you know, we always talk about the banality of evil. This was the stupidity of evil. And again, as I also was thinking about trying to make connections to modern times, mm-hmm. I think we are confronted on a daily basis these days by the stupidity of evil. And I just felt like there was this opportunity to embrace the truth and let it be funny, but at the same time, kind of like the way you almost uncomfortably sometimes laugh or giggle at a funeral when you don't mean to, like it's an uncomfortable laugh. Like, you know you're not supposed to be laughing because these are bad guys. That guy likes Hitler. And yet, you all laughed. I heard you laughing. So, do you know what I... And that, to me, was sort of, again, again not just along with the, uh, the concept of the, the point of view. I just thought it was a very sort of unique take on it, which was embracing the stupidity. I, I will say to you all, just as... Uh, as you're here tonight and I get to say these things because no one's paying any attention. Look, I, I, you know, again, first episodes are always difficult. I think finding the tone, there's a learning process there. I think if I could go back and ever so slightly tone it down one more degree, I would. And if you watch the further episodes, it finds itself in my, for myself, I find it, it finds its way ever so slightly more, which is to say, Every now and then I look there and it feels a little big for my taste. But, you know, that's all hindsight of having watched it 87 times. So, yeah. 
You know, we talked a little bit earlier um, uh, when we were having dinner about, you know, the whole banality of evil thesis and, and the stupidity of evil. And yet what seems so different, like Hannah Arendt talking about Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem, 1963. Right. She's trying to say, you know, these, you know, these are uh, mostly men who are family men at night and by day they're killers. They just follow orders that, you know. And so here, what, as the more I thought about it, is here, it's not about following orders. They're not following orders. I mean, they're making things up. But there's a kind of, at once, a kind of individualism, rugged or not, added with, like, celebrity culture, this desire to be, like, if not a celebrity, but an important person. Uh, and Gordon Liddy definitely yeah. had delusions of James Bondian grandeur. He... It's a strange thing for a guy who wanted to be a secret agent. You know, it's the thing that people joke about James Bond. It's like he wanted to be a secret agent, but he also wanted to be the world's most famous secret agent, which, of course, (laughs) does not make for a good secret agent. And, you know, much like, you know, I don't know, I hate to say for a sex tape or not wearing underwear when they got out of a car, he didn't particularly judge how his fame happened. He was actually ultimately quite okay with sort of, as he became kind of a national joke, but all he kind of cared about was as long as they spell my name right, you know, that old cliche. And in a strange way, and I don't think this is a spoiler, he kind of got everything he wanted. G. Gordon Liddy became for those of you that can actually remember Johnny Carson, you know, G. Gordon Liddy became like a, like a bad yeah. punchline. Um, he got kind of everything he wanted. So there's definitely on his part that sort of desire for celebrity. There's this desire to be closer to power, right. whatever that means, which is, you know, something we talked about this as well, that was definitely a big part of my Veep background, working on Veep, was that we were dealing with that all the time of... Are you, if I can be one inch closer to the guy making the decision, then I'm, you know, X degrees more important and more powerful. Um, But the other part of it, which is, again, I think you can draw these lines from then right to now. They're not following orders, but they think they're on some sort of, they've deluded themselves into some sort of like almost holy crusade. And you hear it in some of like, uh, Howard Hunt's languages, where anybody who doesn't agree with him is a communist or a degenerate, a goddamn Jane Fonda, an elitist, you know, Hollywood a-hole, whatever. And so you're hearing that language, which sounds very familiar to us now, and yet again, 1972. But it was this sort of birth of true believerism, this sort of where all of a sudden it wasn't. I'm for Ike, or I like Ike, it was somehow that our guys not only know better, but I'm willing to sort of put it, I'm willing to just put it all on the line for a guy who, of course, it turns out is not interested in protecting me, as they all find out, the Michael Cones, the Rudy Giuliani's, they all discover this, but also like a deluded sort of like crusade, a holy war. And that was definitely a... It's definitely part of America, but it was a big change, I think, in politics. So, well, that's, that's, you know, but it, of course, it was also a, a you know a characteristic of Nazi Germany. Oh, complete. Yes. But, but, but what seems, di- I wonder, I, I wonder. But if, there, and I'm not. This is going to be one of these strange things. Yeah. But let me tell you why the Nazis were no. Um, but it was this there. What's with your Hitler? Right. Exactly. That. Exactly. I once wrote a sketch. Sorry, this has nothing to do with anything. Uh, I wrote a sketch at Saturday Night Live. This would have been back back in 92 or 93, and I, I will tell this story because we're here at a college. I was fresh out of college. I, was, uh, I, was, I started work there when I was, basically I graduated from college and started the following fall at SNL. And I wrote a sketch that was sort of about being in a classroom, which was somebody attempting to make a point about Hitler's rise to power. And the point was how trying to say like he was a good speaker but of course the kids the other students just keep attacking sort of in that are you saying Hitler was good and it's like no that's not what I'm trying to say I was sort of saying he was a good speaker so you're saying he was good and anyway it was that idea but anyway where I was going with it was you in 1972 you don't have the 
the inflation, the Weimar Republic, the sense that, I mean, you don't have those things. In some ways, I think what you do have, and again, it's sort of no one ever says it in this movie, I'm sorry, in this show, and no one said it a lot out loud, I think, in 1972. You have, quite honestly, um, you have the Civil Rights Act. And that's, you sort of are starting to see sort of the breakup, the Democratic South goes Republican. And you sort of, all of a sudden, it's the underlying thing, I think, which is to say, we are... Yes, I'm going to call you a communist and I'm going to do all of this. But also what I'm really kind of saying is they're the party that the black people are voting for. And they're trying to give a lot of things to black people. And we're the party that isn't. And mm. so I think there's that sort of underlying thing that's in there that connects to that true believerism. I know there's, again, right. there's and, a point and, in there and, somewhere. And I don't want yeah. to go belabor this too much because I have other really yeah. good questions. But I really think, I, I have been thinking about just the, the role of media, like you're the radio and, and the, 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 L, the LP, you know, yeah. and Hitler's speeches and how, you know. And by the way, later on in the episodes, you get more of the news, you know, the actual, like, the, the day-to-day coverage. But it's also fascinating because it's so much slower. No, that's right. Yeah. So, and so you just think of how media itself has, there's always been... Blind loyalty. There's always been uh, fanatics, but that how it proliferates in media in different ways in different historical times. But we'll leave that uh, for another time. I wanted to talk about what is, I'm sure, pretty obvious to people, but critics have described the White House Plumbers as a buddy movie, a male romance, a bromance structured, you know, structured like a love story. Clearly, the casting of Harrelson and, and Thoreau was key, since they do have a chemistry yep. on screen. More than this, I recall our conversation um, back in 2019 of Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. You said then that you found inspiration in Billy Wilder's work and, and, and Some Like It Hot um, and his work with an actor like Jack Lemmon and that you found similar chemistry between director and star. That, that, and so Billy Wilder would go on to work with Jack Lemmon. They, Multiple and, times, yep. And um, you were saying that that inspired... that. That also kind of describes your relationship working with Julie Louis-Dreyfus. So what could you tell us Only about... Only in that definition, I think she's Billy Wilder and Jack Lemmon. And I'm just <laughs> we a, can change I'm just, it up. I'm we just a guy. Change. I'm just a third guy. She's both of them. But anyway, yes. But can you tell us more about working with uh, Harrelson and Thoreau? And- yeah. I mean, it was really interesting. I didn't know either gentleman. I think Woody and I had met, and he certainly had no memory of it. I had met him in like 92 <laughs> at a White House correspondence uh, uh, dinner in D.C. at the after party, Chris Hitchens' after party at the old uh, Russian embassy, and I think he offered me a joint to smoke, which uh, that part he would agree with. But uh, um, but uh, so I didn't really know either of uh, either of the guys, and they're incredibly opposite. I mean, it, it, there's a you know we were joking a lot on uh, on the set about uh, Justin and Woody. They they knew each other. They had participated in the live Norman Lear uh, mm-hmm. reenactments that ABC was doing. And uh, they did All in the Family. I think Justin was a producer. And Woody actually played Archie Bunker, if anyone ever saw any of those. Yeah. And on set, I was sort of saying, you guys should do it again. Not that it was Norman Lear, but I said, uh, you guys should do The Odd Couple. You should do uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Tony Randall and Jack Klugman, the, mm-hmm. the TV Odd Couple, uh, which... Uh, uh, I like better, but anyway, not the point of the story. Um, so they, they 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 attack things very differently. You know, Justin is spot on on take one, and Woody isn't. Um, and you know, Justin is very right there and on time, and that's not Woody. And yet, you know, they and they they they, they attack things very differently. Um, and, you know, it's that wonderful thing that all directors deal with, which is how do I keep this guy fresh and how do I get this guy to where he needs to be and how do I get that in the same frame? Because we had this theory, Stephen Meiser and I, um, which we kind of lifted in part from all the president's men, because, again, if you're going to steal, steal from the best, um, which was if you watch all the president's men, go back and watch it, uh, once they are together in that movie, they are always in the same frame. It's all two shots. And even when it's not a two shot of like two guys sitting next to each other. And by the way, they go into Ben Bradley's office. They're sitting on like a small settee for two. I mean, I I don't know if Ben Bradley had that, but they did in this. You know, it's always two shots. And if you look at when they're typing, 
the way they've organized the desks, it's always like one guy typing in the foreground here and the other guy in the deep background, mm-hmm. you probably with a split diopter or whatever, you know, kind of in profile. But again, they're always in each other's shots. And the idea sort of stole the same idea, which was sort of these two guys, once they come together, they're going to be in this two shot and then they're going to be in that two shot until things start to go bad in the later episodes and it's going to fall apart. And I never think the audience is going to sit there and go, aha, it's a two shot and aha, now there's no two shot. But I do think on a psychological subliminal level, you notice something and something is off and something is different. It's not like the way it was. And that's that feeling of uneasiness that I'm looking for in the later episodes. Anyway, round it back around. So imagine a two shot and I've got one guy on take one who's great and I've got another guy who's on take 17 and he's wonderful. Um, and you're trying to sort of find that, two, that thing. And again, you know, some of it was really a little bit of on-the-job training because I didn't have the relationship. And it's a little bit of why I sort of said what I said, I think, about episode one, too, which is I just think we all got better at communicating with each other as it goes. And by the end, I mean, it was great because we all did understand each other. And the good news was the bigger, maybe more emotional, more important scenes were definitely way all over the back end of the show. Mm -hmm. And so by the time we got there, when, you know, the, you know, the sort of like any given speech, you know, might have different levels and areas to it. I think we were really in sync. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of go, I, you know, the next one would be very fun because we, I think we, we built a relationship, but it was definitely on the job training. Right, and as you yeah. said earlier too, it yeah. was also in COVID where yes. you're isolated. So. Which, by the way, you know, you're up there and you're trying to give a note, and so much of your note is an, ex- you know, you're trying to sort of you make a joke, but you make a joke that maybe sounds very serious, but it's clear you're smiling. Well, if now I'm not, and I'm sort of making a joke or being a wise ass, but you can't tell I'm smiling, and you don't know me well enough to hear the change in my tone, you might think I'm a. Because I just sort of said to you, that one wasn't good, but I did it in that way of like, you do it like, oh, that wasn't good, Woody, let's do it again. Well, that's a joke when you can see me doing it and he can laugh. But if you don't know me well and my face is covered, it's not maybe perhaps quite as funny. Um, Where I was going to loop this back around to, which was to Billy Wilder, you know, the great accusation against Billy Wilder was always, of course, that he was so cynical. And it's interesting, on a couple of places that I've seen have kind of maybe not used, specifically expressed that they don't like the cynicism of this, but that they're bothered by the fact that these guys who were so terrible are also sort of an object of ridicule, that somehow laughing at the Watergate somehow takes the onus, I don't know, off of it, or that somehow it's forgiving them for something or I don't know. And I, I, again, I'm not, I'm just, again, I pick this sort of up, whatever, but I, I, it's something that's out there. And I don't know, not that I sit here and think to myself, what would Billy Wilder do? But I, I certainly think he would appreciate this, the sort of the strange mix. He was definitely a guy that often mixed things together in a way. Anyway, wherever that fits into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think maybe part of the reason that, Critics, you know, it's so cynical is because, well, Veep is cynical, but it also is really... But it declares itself much more clearly as a comedy. As I said before, there's not a lot of jokes in this. There are a lot of funny character things and a lot of funny things you can't believe are happening. But it's fewer and far between. I mean, even like goddamn Jane Fonda, you guys might have laughed at that, but it's not a set-up punchline. It's a funny character thing and it's that is joke like but it's not a written joke and in some ways one of the big sort of policings i did on the entire on the entire show was anything that started to seem like a joke mm. left the script or ch- got changed or buried or more hidden because it's it, it's not a joke but yes veep declares itself very clearly and this one not that we're trying to have it both ways or be between two stools. It's just we're sort of saying, here's something you haven't seen before. And, of course, people don't know quite what to make of it. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about setting and the sure. overall design um, and how you came to it. Um, I'm thinking about the Hunt's house as opposed to the Liddy's house. And the Hunt's house is this kind of mid-century modern out in the forest yep. where you could ride your horse, which is... 
Glad, what was it? Anyways, okay. Whereas, you know, the Liddy house is like on a block with similar right. houses. It's much more modest and, and so on. Um, so, and then you shoot at the actual Watergate Hotel. You said at, at other D.C. landmarks. So how were you able to recreate this world, especially in the pandemic? Um, I, re- I read somewhere that the cast and crew spent several weeks filming and living at the Watergate Hotel. Yeah. Um, something you or others believe would be really important to understanding um, the grasp of the world they were inhabiting. Well, there's a couple of things. I'll, I'll start with just period in general, which is, you know, for any budding filmmakers in the audience, if you're doing sort of period, uh, I, I don't ever want to go to upstate New York again as long as I live. <laughs> but if you ever wanted to knock on a house's door because you're looking for a location and have somebody go, is it okay? It's still the original 1943 kitchen. Uh, Newburgh, New York, uh, the Poughkeepsie area is the place for you. I mean, it, it was a fascinating thing. Our first time around pre-COVID, we were going to shoot in New York City at Silver Cup. And every day during our location scouting, we would drive further and further upstate, even though we were supposed to be shooting in the city. Because basically, if it looked okay from the outside, you'd go inside and it would be completely renovated and look yeah. like, you know, just like crazy modern glass whatever and then half the time we'd go somewhere and it'd be covered in scaffolding because they were undoing whatever interesting characteristic you know what I mean or they were knocking it down or whatever so it was this fascinating thing where you were going up to some of these depressed towns like downtown Newburgh which has these wonderful old like abandoned banks that are just nothing you know most of them at best, are being used as like party rental spaces. And so we would take one over and that became our uh, Watergate hearing room. And it's this incredible old giant building that we turned into a hearing room. You won't know the difference when you see it. So we that's number one. We got very lucky sort of just being in this sort of unfortunately depressed New York City upstate area that has a lot of old stuff. So that that's number one. Um, in terms of, you know, things like the Watergate, there are things, the Watergate is such a strange building, and I don't know if anyone's ever been there. You know, it's, 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 it, it, you know, it's, it's not one building. It's this giant complex of buildings, and it's, now it's condos and a hotel and offices and restaurants and whatever. But it's not till you're there and you're walking that you actually can understand, I see, they were trying to break into this building. So they set up across the street in what used to be a Howard Johnson's. And they went in this garage because this garage led you up into this building. But one time they went through the hotel because the hotel has a door in the back of the lobby that lets you sneak into the office building without going by. I mean, and, 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 and I cannot tell you, these were facts that were in the script for two years and it wasn't until the spring of 21 right before shooting where we took a trip down to dc to do some scouting where it wasn't until i was able to walk through the lobbies and almost do a loop where i just went oh i understand it now and when you get to the episode which is the third episode where you see it you'll see it's, I mean, I'm, I'm basically moving the camera as much as I can with them to teach you, the audience, the geography, so mm-hmm. you understand it. Because if you did it in, like, tights and pieces, you would have no sense of, I don't understand, they just got to a hotel, how are they there? And it is literally, it's one of my favorite shots, basically, it starts them outside, um, basically, it kind of leads them into the hotel. There's a doorman, welcome to the Watergate Hotel. Then, basically, they go past the camera, and now it's following them. They get to this door. They open the door. Liddy holds the door. Camera goes past him and gets to Hunt, who's now explaining, welcome, you know, and, and it's all there. And it's not till you are there. And there is just that thing of being in a place that, that makes it real. I'll give you another example. We shot a scene with John Dean and Liddy, basically after the burglaries have happened and uh, they've been arrested and, you know, the, 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 the heat is closing in and Liddy sort of waits for him outside the executive office building. 
And uh, the part was played by uh, 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 it's uh, Donal. Uh, oh my lord, uh, 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 Donal uh, Gleason. Yes, sorry, Jesus, thank you. Um, and uh, you'd think Gleason would be the easy part of that to remember, but uh, um, <laughs> we we shot him as John Dean, and then he left way before we got to DC. And quite honestly. Forget, forget about COVID for a second, but just work-wise, we honestly just weren't sure, like, he may take another job and we may not be able to get, he was going off to do a play. He might not be able to get back. But also, COVID. If he gets COVID, he won't come back to D.C. If people aren't allowed of, out of Ireland, he might not come back to D.C. If America isn't letting people in from the right. U.K., he might not get back to D.C. So we shot this scene in Albany. We had a couple of days in Albany where we doubled some of D.C. up there. And we shot this scene. And I shot it in that sort of Murphy's Law kind of thing, which is if I don't shoot it and wait for him to come back, he will never come back and I will not get it. If I shoot it, maybe then so that he'll come back and I'll get my, you know, just because the odds are if I go to the trouble to shoot it, I won't need it. So... We shot it there. That's a perfectly fine scene, but it's hard to explain the difference, the one that's in the show, where they are literally outside the EOB and in one direction you cannot help but see the Washington Monument. Not because we added it digitally, because it's there. And just that sense of... There, you know, there's whatever. There's Pennsylvania Avenue. There's 17th. Like, you don't have to know D.C. to just... Feel the difference, and so that was just a huge part of it. Of really, again, for something that's going to have comedy in it, that is funny. The more the straight is straight, and the more the straight is accurate, and that's part of the straightness. I think it allows the funny parts to exist because when it's not being funny. Like, if you pulled anything that was making you laugh out, and again, I'm talking about even the things that are real, pulled that out. There's, there's a very sort of, you know, again, very dark, real, brutal movie or show in there. And I think it's all made that much more dark and brutal by the real Watergate, the real streets of yes. D.C. So I guess that's a big part of it. And the period accuracy. And the, we talked a little bit about this. We were talking before. It's, you know, it's real period accuracy. It's not the 70s show, which I love the 70s show. But... Everybody in every scene is always wearing a turtleneck, you know, like a, like a mustard yellow turtleneck. There are not a lot of mustard yellow turtlenecks. Everyone isn't sitting on a beanbag chair. You know, there's that thing that I think people forget. We were, again, we were joking about this. You know, like something will be a show from 1971, and especially like on a, ba- on a, on a, on a cheaper, like on a flashback episode of a sitcom or something like that. Well, okay, it's 71, and they just have everybody dressed from 71. Everybody's hairstyle is 1971. The furniture, everything is 1971. That's not how it works. If you're a married couple in 1971, and you're living in that house, your, your car may be still from 1961. Your ties may be from 1963. If you're a woman, you may have locked in on your hairstyle 20 years ago. That's, you know, that's what things are. And then because I do now remember what your question, some of the other parts of your question, in terms of the houses, you know, in a show that is about a lot of white guys and a lot of white guys in suits, I'm always looking for things that can define people in ways that are easy for the audience to understand. And so, by definition, Howard has more money, which is true. So he's got the bigger, nicer house, and yet... They don't quite have as much money as they want you to think. So some of the stuff is a little ramshackled and there's maybe a little too much furniture. And he cares a little bit too much about the right clubs and labels and things, which you'll see. Melities are, they actually had a much bigger house. It was just in a bad part of, it was a not as a good part of D.C. So they actually didn't have a small house. But for the purposes of like sort of, you know, because I think class distinction is an important thing in this world and in general. So to give them the sort of smaller house where he's buying more off-the-rack suits and he's maybe he's allowing his ties to sort of be a little bit more of an embracing of the modern sort of fashion style. And Fran Liddy 
is maybe reading the magazines and striving to be a little bit more of the now, but also take note, she's maybe sewing her own versions of the latest fashions. So it's a little bit more made and yet trying to be a little bit more fashionable. And, And so, you know, you're looking for those things. The Cubans, and again, I'm not asking you to sit there and answer a quiz and have and know this all. I'm just telling you, this is there for me. This is there for the actors. And again, I think it's all there subliminally. So each Cuban, and by the way, I'm very proud of this. They're all played by actual Cuban guys, real Cubans. They all had different ties. It was fascinating. Each guy had different stories about his own familial connections to the Bay of Pigs, which was just beyond fascinating, and I could have listened to that for hours. But each guy, we did the research on each guy, and Macho is different than Muscolito, and Muscolito was a little bit more of a snazzy dresser. And Macho was a little bit more, he was a little bit more almost trying to dress like Howard Hunt, who he kind of worshipped, and he was a CIA operative, but he wasn't allowed to advance as far in the CIA because, of course, he's Cuban, he's non-white. So he's trying to dress like Howard. He's trying to dress the way a CIA guy could. So again, just even within the Cubans, you're trying to find these differences that again, are, I think, just help kind of create a world. That's the stuff I'm looking for for a director, as a director, and as people I'm hiring to work with, the different department heads who I just loved. So yeah. I'll ask one last question yeah, before we opened like, up to the you know. audience, because I'm sure they have questions, and if not, I have others. Um, but I was... You know, we've kind of touched on a lot of things that I already had prepared for later questions, but this whole notion of true believers, blind loyalty, and yet you structure this story is about political ambition, but also family men. Um, And when we meet um, at the Hunt household, you feel like you're in the 70s. I mean, you feel like the teenagers, these young adults are actually of their time. And then at the Liddy house, you know, it is like the Von Trapp family. Very series. Von Trapp yeah. family, yeah. And, and, um, and we only see them twice in the whole series. We see them this time and then later. Yeah. So, um, and yet in, in real life, of course, the, the Liddy's uh, stayed together. Um, and of course, we're not talking about what happened to Dorothy yet. Um, they can look it up. It's a historical fact. But, you know, part of it is that, uh, Hunt has such a troubled relationship with his family and, and, you know, really disregards their happiness and their concerns. And we see it in this episode at the beginning with the daughter who's distressed and it's, you know, this is a good day for me. I don't want to hear about anybody's distress. Um, And in the end, I mean, what's the point of comparing the two families? Why was it important for you to have this kind of loyalty to family and loyalty to I think when you are talking about true believers, you are talking about the cost. And if you're talking about the cost or the collateral damage, you have to figure out what that is. And in this case, it's the families. In this case, it's more the Hunt family than the Liddy family. And a little bit of that is the comparison to sort of show that, you know, Gordon Liddy, again, we talked a little bit about on on the B side, kind of gets everything he wants, stayed married to the same woman, his kids, you know, for the most part, tight-knit family that worshipped dad, like sort of everything that the hunts weren't. And a little taste of that is really, I mean, it, I, don't, I didn't think you needed a hundred scenes of it, but I think it was important in some ways to show he was willing to make these sacrifices, but in a way didn't have to, and then also, of course, it d- didn't have any damage. And it goes that much further to show everything that Hunt sort of loses and sacrifices. So that's, I think, the, the huge reason you just, you need the collateral damage, and I think it's the most easiest and basic thing to understand. Um, The other thing that's a big difference between the two of them, and again, this is a little bit about class distinction, but also just who they were. Um, And again, I'm talking about big, broad labels, and these are things that are never said in the show, but again, this is the stuff I was thinking about, talking to the actors about and whatnot. Um, Howard Hunt was was a has-been. You know, he, his glory days were at the Bay of Pigs. And so this is a guy that, you know, when we joined this show, has spent 10 years trying to be important. And so it is, you see that damage by just seeing right from the get-go with his kids, these sort of barely, like, you know, roommates, not husband and wife with his wife. Um, 
you know, again, it's there for the taking, the sense that in some way he kind of only can get it up once he's important again. I mean, right. you know, the power and uh, whatever, uh, uh, but Kissinger power is the greatest aphrodisiac. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's there again as much for the taking as you want it. But um, whereas Liddy uh, is, uh, and again, this is the dangerous combination, the has-been and the never-was, the guy who's striving, whatever. Right. And in some ways... The younger kids, the the, the, the right. happier wife, the husband can do no wrong. Again, I, I'm, you know, you're trying to create those things. But the real answer is, it was the easiest way of sort of showing what they lost. I mean, it, it's that simple. That that's the, the shorter answer. Right. Yeah. Right. No, interesting. Well, let's open up for audience questions. Hi. Um, hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good, Thank thanks. you for coming. Um, I just kind of you you mentioned earlier you were talking about the how the whole. Water, all of Watergate, it was a tragedy, but it was also, in a horribly horrible way, it was funny. It was comedic. And you also have a great track record of fusing comedy into your work. And I was just kind of wondering, when you were going, when you were reading the, the source, the, the book you, you based it off of, and you just kind of when you looked at this, all of the history of it as a whole, since it's, uh, I just kind of wondered, is, uh, is, it, is it that you could... When you looked at it, did you just see the No, I know what you're saying. Look, I think it empirically reads funny. I'm not saying it's a laugh riot page after page, but you get two various descriptions of the multiple break-ins, and you are, you're like, what? (laughs) No. I mean, it's, it's those kinds of reactions, if that makes any sense. And then there are other things that you mine where, look, You'll read a description, and by the way, Liddy himself, in his own uh, autobiography, Will, will talk about the Nazis, not that he likes, you know, there's sort of that thing where he goes, look, I know they're bad, but, which of course is not what you want to hear about Nazis, but it is that kind of thing where he'll talk in his book about how he had this German nanny, whatever, Frau Teresa, or whatever her name was, who played him these speeches, and he, you know, the sad truth about Gordon Liddy was he was this little kid that, you know, was ignored by his family and got the kicked out of him and all this kind of stuff. And he desired a certain level. That, I think, you know, that's where his desire to be important comes from. And you read his descriptions about what he liked about Hitler, this sort of, this take no nonsense, like strength and like, like literally will um, which is the name of his book, and you get to things like him eating rats to get over his fear of rats. And on the one hand, you're just like, and you can also be, you can be like, oh my god, like this is horrible. And you can think of all those things. But also, I don't know. I guess I'm just a guy that I read about a guy eating a rat because he was afraid of rats, and I start giggling. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a great answer. I'm not sure I saw anything magical. I just allowed it to also be funny. I, I'm a big believer. And I, it's true to me of the, you know, the, the great shows. I mean, look, everybody, I'm sure, Succession, which I'm a big fan of, obviously just ended, and I won't ruin anything if those who haven't. I think part of why that worked was on any given week, it was absolutely hilarious and also absolutely awful. I mean, not awful bad. I mean, awful, they were awful, their behavior. Um, and it often said things about our system and politics and whatnot. And yet it all kind of worked because... Life is messy. And I guess that's what I was mostly going for was that it's, things are messy and it can be sort of funny, but also can be kind of awful. So I guess in that, that, somewhere in there is the answer. Uh, hi, David. Thanks for being here today. It's great to hear from you. Hey, um, how are you doing? So this is a little bit of a spoiler question, but um, there's an, in an episode later in the series, uh, there's a scene where Howard Hunt gets a call from Woodward and Bernstein. Yes. In Washington. Did you actually use the actual audio from All the President's Men? No. So I'll, I'll give the quick background. I don't think this is particularly ruining anything. So... In All the President's Men, you can rem- for those of you that know the movie, um, uh, at some point or another, uh, 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 Woodward uh, sees H.H. and figures out Howard Hunt and f- starts calling the White House and basically, after a number of calls, tracks him down at Mullen & Company, which is the place we see him uh, working at the very beginning of the, of the show, um, and calls him and basically says, is this Howard Hunt? This is Bob Woodward from the Washington Post. And he says, What's your, what, what is your name doing in the, the, the notebook or whatever he says of one of the burglars? And he goes, dear God, and hangs up the phone. And that's the scene in, uh, in All the President's Men. Um, 
And in this one, um, we have the Hunt side of the phone call, which actually happened, uh, we have it at Hunt's home, and he's home with the kids and the phone call comes in. And the specifics of the call, the dialogue is different because actually they did, the, they did it as a single break-in with no reference to the multiple break-ins. And so they, got, they don't have, they didn't have, you'll see there's a thing about an envelope that gets found. And so our, our how Woodward found Hunt's name is a more specific thing based on, I think, newer research, if that makes any sense. So the long and the short of it is, I, let me just, philosophically, I always had this idea that because we were f- zoomed in on these two other guys, this idea that all these movies are taking place at the same time. So over here is all the president's men, and we're over here, and nothing in our show is different than what happens here, and except we have this one phone call where Woodward calls Howard Hunt. So we have that the, the Hunt side of the phone call, and we we kind of did it and you know i think one of the writers was just doing like reading it on the other end of the phone and we were in post having this conversation it started as a joke but it was sort of like you know haha you know we should get we should get redford to do it it was like yeah right whatever so we start going like well what should we do we can audition some actors whatever and then at some point or another there was this idea of like well why don't we see if bob woodward wants to do it because who sounds more like Bob Woodward than the real Bob Woodward? And again, not that anyone would be sitting at their home and go, oh my God, that's Bob Woodward's voice. That's so cool. But you know, again, like someone might write a little article on it. And so it was like, well, I mean, that's as good as it gets. Um, And then I remembered that Woody made a movie with Robert Redford. He made that Indecent Proposal movie right. where Robert Redford offers him a million dollars for Demi Moore. And so just on the fly kind of asked Woody, could he send a note to Robert Redford and ask Redford, would he be interested in playing the role of Woodward again? I mean, just do voiceover. And a long period of silence, and we were just you know auditioning actors, and I will not lie, I found two pretty decent Bob Woodward person. I mean, not Bob Woodward, sorry, two pretty decent Redford sound-alikes that I found. And I was sort of thinking about just doing a sound-alike when, lo and behold, he got back to us and said, yeah, he would, he would do it. And so his assistant recorded him, him doing it, and I, I mean, it, and I got to put it together in the edit room, and I'll just tell you, I mean, whatever about this show and when you can all hate it I don't even care I got to cut Bob Woodward's dialogue as I'm sorry I got to cut Bob Bob Redford as Woodward's dialogue into this thing the coolest thing in the world so it's Redford playing Bob Woodward when you get to that scene but newly recorded so if you listen carefully you hear his age ever so slightly but it's pretty damn cool if I say so myself so so that's part of the Watergate universe that all these movies are taking place it's like the multiverse but different so yeah Well, thanks, everyone, for coming. Please join me in thanking David Mendel. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.